Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is XJob Downloaded. And today I have the absolute honour of interviewing Zarit Zahabi. Have I said that correctly? <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, Zarit is a um, lieutenant colonel in the reserves in the um, Israeli Defence Force and also the CEO and founder of ALMA, which is a non-profit and independent research and education centre specialising in Israel's security challenges on the northern border. Now, things things are tough out there at the moment, and we'll, we'll come on to that, but where did it all begin for you, and what was the inspiration to join the IDF? Wow. Um, since I was 16, I wanted to understand what's going on here and what is truly happening in the Middle East. Telling you some secrets now uh, that uh, about myself. Um, I learned the Middle Eastern studies and Arabic in high school. Right. Uh, but uh, I didn't pass the exams <laughs> for intelligence. Oh. <laughs> and uh, I was assigned to be a manpower officer. I was dealing with reservists. And then I ended my service after two and a half years and I went to study Middle Eastern studies because this is what I was interested in, nothing else. I wanted to know why they hate us so much. I wanted to know why there is no peace, why there is no democracy in the Middle East. I didn't get all the answers, of course. Um, and uh, during my MA, I was recruited back to the army. This time I passed the exams and I became an intelligence officer. Fantastic. I, it's, it's an interesting... Um... It's an interesting discussion because if we go back to the time of the Romans, up until that point, it, it was a Jew. It was the Jewish homeland, wasn't it? It was the Jewish homeland. And it was the Romans that originally said, "We don't want the Jewish people here," and handed it over. But that seems to be lost on the on the current the current climate. But so you're you're an intelligence officer, or you were an intelligence officer? I uh, actually I were. I'm not, no longer with reserves. Um, because what I'm doing today is, uh, you know, my face is everywhere, uh, so I can no, no longer be with intelligence. Uh, and I was not uh, drafted uh, during this war. I decided that uh, to bring the voice of the people that are living up north uh, as a civilian, uh, I'm their contribution to my homeland and to, to this effort is no less uh, than wearing the uniforms. So where do your family originate from? Uh, you're asking all the interesting questions. Uh, it, it's funny, we always say that I'm originated with all these countries that are today uh, enemies of Israel, unfortunately. Um, my grandmother was born in Beirut. And uh, it's also an interesting story. We don't have the time to tell all of it. But the bottom line is that she was married at the age of 16, a very young age. 
to a rich uh, Jewish jeweler from Damascus. And my grandfather was from Damascus and my father was born in Damascus. Uh, on my mother's side, uh, my, my grandfather came from Ispahan in Iran. We don't know too much about that, except for the regular uh, Jewish story that uh, his, grandma, his grandfather was uh, the teacher of the, the king. It is always like that. All Jews were either the, the teachers of the cooks or something with the king in, in, yeah. in Iran or in, or in Morocco. Uh, that's the urban legends in the families. Uh, and uh, on my my grandmother on my mother's side, she was born in Hebron, which is a, a big city today in in the West Bank. Yes. Because she was expelled from Hebron when she was a seven-year-old kid after after the Arabs massacred the Jews there in 1929. Wow. And 67 Jews were killed in a very brutal way. It actually pretty much reminds us what happened in October 7th. And then the, the next day, the British took all the Jews and put them on trucks and took them away. And it didn't happen only in Hebron. It happened in many cities in the West Bank, but the, the massacre in Hebron was the most famous one. And uh, these uh, riots and this massacre actually ended the Jewish presence in West Bank that lasted centuries. Hebron is one of the four holy cities for Judaism uh, for thousands of years. And... And 1929, uh, the Jewish presence in Hebron ended, and my grandmother was one of these children that were expelled from there, and from there they moved to Jerusalem. Incredible. Incredible. And, and you know, we talk about displacement, and for centuries the, the Jewish nation has been displaced. There are some countries in the Middle East where there are no Jewish people, whereas for hundreds of years, there were thousands of Jewish people, and now there are none. In all of the Middle Eastern countries, there were big communities of Jews, and actually today, more than half of the Israelis originated in the Middle East, not in Europe, like myself and many, many others. But you know what impressed me is that you said the Jewish nation and the Jewish people. And I think this is something we should say a word about, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm usually being asked, Judaism is actually a religion. No, it's not just a religion. Judaism is a nation. It's the Jewish people. We were a tribe uh, that established this place, that built Jerusalem 3,000 years ago. And that's why you see such a strong identity that was preserved during the years, because we have uh, kind of the same dream, the same connection to the same land uh, which, and, and the same city, which is Jerusalem. And uh, this is something that uh, it, it is really difficult for many people to understand because it's a really long history. It's not just modern history, it's something else. And there is a continuancy. Like I'll, I'll give you a small example. I, I, I live in Israel, I was born and raised in Israel. We have our prayings uh, in the holidays. Uh, Yom Kippur is the, the holiest day in Judaism. And it happened to me that I went to spend Yom Kippur in Arkansas, which is, I don't know, Somewhere in the States, no? yeah. <laughs> and I went to the synagogue there, and it was a synagogue from a different stream in Judaism. You compare it to Christianity, so it's like Protestants and, and Catholic. Yes. And the frames were basically the same. And yeah. there is no connection, you know, my synagogue, is my con uh, congregation is what we call Mizrahi congregation, meaning originated from the Middle East. The congregation in uh, Arkansas was 
Ashkenazi originated in Europe. There shouldn't be any connection, but the brains were the same, the texts were the same, the connection to Jerusalem, to Israel were the same. Um, and I, al I always uh, thrilled again and again and again to see uh, the, the fact that we actually share the same history uh, as a nation. But, but the nation has suffered immense persecution for so many centuries. I mean, you, w w people will look at the Holocaust as part of modern history, but actually these things, the persecution took place long before the Holocaust. Yes. But, Look, but, in, in, in the Middle East, by the way, I, I should tell you, in the Middle East, on the one hand, Jews lived in the Arab states with very good relationship with their Arab neighbors. But on the other hand, even I myself, I learned that there were clashes here and there along the years, even though they lived in, in general peace and, you know, they even got to high ranks in, in governments in these countries like in Iraq or Morocco. Uh, I can tell you that, for example, in, in the 19th century, there was a plot against Jews in Damascus, which I didn't know about it. My, my father even didn't know about it. I, I learned about it only years later. So things, it was not, it was not uh, peaceful to, to, to live what we call in exile, to live outside of Israel. The connection to Israel uh, never ended, even if we, we were 2,000 years in exile. Uh, in all our songs and, and traditions and practices, uh, like religious practices, eventually there is a connection to a land, which that's the main uh, characteristic to a nation. Right. I, I find it absolutely fascinating. And if you've got a, a, a modicum of, of sense around history, the, 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 the battles that are taking place now, it's a regurgitation of, of many battles that have taken place. People seem to think that in the late 40s, when the Jewish nation was uh, formed, that that was when it all began, but that wasn't when it all began at all. No, of course not. Uh, again, as I've told you, my grandmother was born here yeah. and the massacre took place much uh, before the establishment of the State of Israel. Yes. Uh, there is a cemetery in Jerusalem uh, the most important cemetery in Jerusalem is on Mount Herzl, where you have all our prime ministers buried there, and there's a big uh, military cemetery there. And there is an area there which is uh, to commemorate uh, all the people uh, who were killed, all the Jews that were killed from uh, terrorist attacks. And there was a debate from which way which should we start? When, when did it start, actually, these clashes? And last time I was there, uh, it started from uh, eight, uh, 19, uh, uh, not 19, 1860. Yeah. <laughs> 1860. Oh. These are the first evidence, but... Um, so what, what is there, the, why is there the dislike or the distrust between the Arabic state and the Jewish nation? What What, what is that about? I told you I went to study Middle Eastern studies to get the answer for this question. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, <laughs> you still haven't found the answer. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I found the answer. I think that eventually, now, if you want to understand the Middle East in general, not only uh, the issue of Israel, you should uh, try to understand it from different aspects. Right. And not only from one aspect. If you try only to understand it from one aspect, you will always be frustrated that you got a partial answer. Uh, what do I mean? 
you know, people talk a lot about um, the a place of oil and economy and money in, in all these conflicts. And I, I truly believe that uh, it has a very meaningful place when we speak about uh, oil and money and economic interests when we speak about the wars in the Middle East. So that's one thing that we should not ignore. The second, and this is goes very well with the Palestinian narrative, is the place of colonialism in the Middle East and the fact that the Middle East was colonialized by the British and by the French and by the Italians and whatever. And uh, this created a lot of antagonism uh, to the West. Iran is a very good example for that. Uh, fine, I, I agree. Um, there is a place to understand the Middle East with regard to its history and colonialism, except, you know, to put all the blame on the fact that the Middle East is falling apart actually falling apart on the colonialist uh, time, uh, it's kind of taking a 40-year-old uh, man that uh, failed in everything he had done and to blame his parents. Okay, colonialism ended decades ago, and we should take our destiny in our own, own hands and stop uh, looking at the people of the Middle East as infants. They should be responsible to their own fate. We should be responsible to our own fate. But, but we cannot ignore it. I, I totally agree with that. We cannot ignore it. The third thing we should look at is uh, culture. And culture is a tricky word because what is culture exactly? Um, but I, I do think that what happened here in the Middle East uh, in the past few decades is that we saw radical ideologies blooming, whether it's a Sunni interpretation, radical Sunni interpretation of Islam or Shiite radical Shiite interpretation of Islam, whether it's ISIS or Iran, uh, definitely they had a success, and we can discuss in a minute how come they had a success, taking advantage of the poverty, of the colonialist narrative that we just discussed, uh, of the lack of dignity, if you want to explain the Arab Spring that became a stormy winter, it's exactly that, that the national project failed and people were looking for something else that will give them meaning, give them dignity. And uh, Islamist movements actually based uh, their uh, success on this frustration. Uh, so culture and, and the development of culture and religion in, in a very radical way enabled uh, the situation as it is today. And, and I'm saying that very carefully because I, I truly don't believe that uh, the problem is Islam. Okay, I think that uh, the word Islam comes from the word Salam. Salam in Arabic is peace. Uh, and I think that in every religion you can take it to its violent edge and you can take it to its peaceful edge. And it depends, again, it depends on us where we want to take it. Eventually it's not about God, it's about the people. Um, so that's that's my point of view, but definitely these radical interpretations are here, present and dictating the agenda uh, in the Middle East today. You cannot ignore that. The fourth part is what I call a human nature, because we have seen in the Middle East uh, incidents that uh, there were two movements with the same idea, like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, 
but they were fighting each other or they couldn't agree upon stuff and each movement went in a different direction or the opposite. Iran and Hamas, Iran is Shiite uh, Persian and Hamas is Arab Sunni. They're supposed to be bitter enemies. Sunnis and Shiites are killing each other in other places in the Middle East. There was a crisis in relationship between Hamas and Iran and Hezbollah, which is also Muslim Shiite, uh, at the beginning of the civil war in, in Syria. And today they collaborate deeply and Iran trained Hamas. So, you know, this is like uh, the tip of the ice to try to, to figure out what's truly happening here. First, not everything is about Israel. Not everything is about the Palestinian issue, but uh, we cannot uh, portray a picture in black and white. We need to portray the picture with many, many colors, and that way we'll get a better understanding for this question of how come there is so much hate and, and how come there is no democracy. These are huge questions. As I've said, I, I'm not sure I got all the answers, but no. you know. And, do you, I mean, if you look at it, if you go back in history, when if you say, for instance, when the Nazis uh, were persecuting the Jewish nation, it was born out of jealousies and um, perceived inadequacies. And from an outsider looking in from as a Christian person, I personally feel that the Palestinian issue is around some of these perceived inadequacies and as they see it as being unfair and that they're being treated unfairly. And that brings about another form of bigotry. We have it here with the right wing. They'll become jealous about, uh, you know, it could be a, a Pakistani shopkeeper and someone will get jealous because they're earning more money than, than they are and they've got a nicer car. And all of a sudden, the narrative becomes extreme and then the violence gets involved and bigotry and persecution. And, that, and that's how I, uh, how I see it as a as a, a European onlooker, if that makes sense. I agree that uh, personal interests are taking advantage and, you know, wearing kind of a, a coat of, of radical ideologies, but actually if you take it off the coat, you find out that it's just uh, corrupted uh, leaders that are, uh, but eventually this corruptness, as you saw with the Nazis, it's a very good example. Um, uh, indoctrinating hate that deep that it's really difficult to uproot it later. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we we get here a, a narrative from our popular media that would say that it's Israel are being the bad people here. They're you know they're applying the the ultimate pressure and what have you. What they don't show is that there are missile attacks taking place on a daily basis that are coming out of Palestine that children are being trained in the use of weaponry this is these are the things that we are not being told but am i right because i'm being told that by my israeli friends that's much more worse that's much much worse than that but first uh, since we do have time and we can get into the details uh, I think portraying the details is important. And there is a difference between uh, what is happening up north, where I'm based, and what was happening in the south. And, and, and let's, let's talk about that, okay? In the south, what happened is that in 1967, Israel took over Gaza because during the years before 67, we suffered a lot from raids of terrorists that came from Gaza and uh, killed people 
in the same communities actually that were massacred now. And eventually in 1967, with the Six Days War, which I'm not going to, to get to all the details of the Six Days War, but we can do that later, uh, Israel decided to take over Gaza Strip. Uh, we built communities and we settled the Jews, and I want to say we settled the Jews back to Gaza, because as I've said at the beginning of this conversation, there was Jewish presence in Gaza Strip yes. uh, decades, many decades ago, and there was an old synagogue there, etc. But anyway, we settled Gaza with a few thousands of Jews, and the conflict was constant, and there was disagreement inside Israel whether we should be there or not. Uh, eventually, with the growing con conflict and the first intifada and second intifada, uh, Ariel Sharon, Israeli Prime Minister in 2005, made a decision to withdraw from Gaza completely. Uh, militarily, civilians, we even took off the deads from the graves, and we didn't leave anything, uh, we just left. Gaza. Um, we evacuated all the communities. We tried to create with the Europeans a platform of collaborations with the Gazians. We build arrangements of how um, merchandise will enter Gaza through Israel with the inspection of Europeans. The first name was UN, UN, EU BAM. Uh, the people that were massacred now in Israel were the same people that supported the Gazians in the withdrawal and helped to build warehouses and agricultural infrastructure and to try to set the base for a new relationship between Gazians and the state of Israel after the withdrawal. And what happened is that the withdrawal took place in 2005. In 2006, I think, seven, there were elections in Gaza and Hamas was elected. It were actually elections in, in Palestinian Authority, which is based in Gaza and Western, and Hamas was elected. And Hamas ideology is that in Palestine, from the river to the sea, there should be established a Palestinian Islamic State. Okay, this is very simple to understand. Okay, no Israel at all, just a Palestinian Islamic State in this in this area. Okay, uh, but as you said, sometimes it's not about you know, the external enemy, but also the internal enemy and corrupted societies. And what Hamas had done is, was immediately was to kill, kill Palestinian Authority representatives in Gaza. It killed a few hundred of Palestinian Authority representatives in Gaza, kicking Palestinian Authority out very violently from Gaza and taking over Gaza. And since that moment, rockets were launched to Israel every day or every week or every month uh, from Gaza to Israel and making our kids growing under the sounds of sirens, meaning that the kids, kids, not kids anymore, almost already parents actually, who were slaughtered on October 7, were children that grew up with the, with the voices of sirens and Israel had to build shelters in all these homes that never had shelters and had to develop defense systems such as the Iron Dome and did everything it can to avoid the destruction of Gaza, to avoid entering into Gaza to take off these missiles. Now, we had a few operations in Gaza, but none of these operations actually uh, defeated Hamas. And the goal was never to defeat Hamas. The goal was to create kind of a balance of deterrence that Hamas will be deterred enough not to launch rockets, kind of a ceasefire, 
And what actually it, this policy enabled, and we are saying that today very angry, but we were wrong to do that, but this was our policy. This policy enabled Hamas to grow and to prosper and to dig all these tunnels and to hide its rockets inside the population and to indoctrinate hate furthermore to its own population and to get that strong that it can carry out this brutal attack that it had carried out in, in October 7th. And our operations in Gaza didn't um, treat the threat. And the whole idea of creating deterrence is actually useless because you cannot create deterrence with somebody who doesn't cherish life. Okay, this is the culture of death that grew in Gaza. And eventually, the children that were born when we left Gaza are the terrorists that massacred and raped our men and women on October 7th. 18 years ago, we had in Rome. That, that's, that's, that's the reality. Now, uh, the rocket stopped after, after e each operation, there was a short ceasefire. Sometimes it lasted weeks, sometimes it lasted months, and sometimes it lasted two or three years. And then they, re they renewed the fire. So it basically, uh, we had every year um, hundreds, thousands, tens, I don't know, different amounts of rockets during the years for 18 years. It never stopped completely. The sirens never stopped completely. And just imagine London, you know, uh, under this kind of threat. Who would, who would raise his children uh, in this kind of atmosphere? Now, if we go to the north, at the same time in the north, in, in the past 17 years, actually at the same time in the north, I raised my kids here in the north, and we hardly had the sirens. Right. Because in the north, in 2006, we had withdrawn completely from South Lebanon in 2000. Hezbollah continued sporadic attacks between 2000 to 2006. In 2006, Israel said enough. We are not going to tolerate sporadic attacks. We want all attacks to stop because we had withdrawn fully from Lebanon and there is no reason for all that. And uh, we went to war after kidnapping of two soldiers and bombing all this, the communities up north with mortars uh, at the same time of the kidnapping. And we went to war for that, actually to push Hezbollah away from the border and, and to remove the threat of the rocket. And we failed. We were stopped by international communities after 33 days without eliminating the threat with a resolution that was supposed to create in the United Nations Security Council it was supposed to create a new order. And what actually happened that this new this resolution talked about um, that any presence of Hezbollah or any other militia in, in South Lebanon is illegal. And that the UN force will be there with 10,000 soldiers and it was unclear who should enforce, who should truly enforce the resolution. This uh, war and this resolution together bought us a relatively quietness. It was not fully quietness, okay? We had missiles here and there and anti-tanks and drones and snipers and everything. But the bottom line is that my kids grew up nine kilometers from the border, hardly running to shelter, feeling safe in their everyday life. Different experience than their brothers and sisters in the South. But at the same time, Hezbollah took the time, 17 years, to grow to develop, to expand, and to put 
thousands and tens of thousands of rockets in the houses, in the homes of the Lebanese to various ranges that can cover all of the state of Israel. And to develop Radwan brigades, which are the parallel for the Nukba of Hamas, meaning commando elite units that are experienced from the war in Syria, and their mission is to invade into Israel. Wow. The last year was crazy because in the last year we saw Hezbollah making the final preparation for this kind of invasion. In Alma Center, we talked about it, we wrote about it, we, we you know, ring all the bells we could to tell everybody that this is about to happen. And uh, my head of research here in Alma told me just when the new year, the new Jewish year, he said, we have until October 8th. Something will happen until October 8th, but actually our eyes and ears were not towards the south. And that's why we missed what Hamas eventually had done. And now Israelis are saying, uh-uh, we are not going to tolerate all of that again. Not the rockets, not the preparations. We want to, to feel safe in our beds, in our homes. So you live nine kilometers from the Lebanese border? Yes. And, and I just found out that I'm within the range of the anti-tanks. I was not aware of all of that, you know, until a few weeks ago that they launched anti-tank missiles to 10 kilometer range. This is insane. Do, you, do, your, do you fear for your personal safety? I mean, you're very um, articulate in the way that you deliver what you know, but you're outspoken. Absolutely, because you're uh, an expert in your field. But do you feel at risk personally? Absolutely. Absolutely. On October 7th, I, I walk out on Saturday morning. Uh, you wouldn't find me awake at 6.30 a.m. in Saturday morning ever. And I walk out from the sounds of my phone, bleep, 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 and I understood something is happening. I opened my cell phone and I saw the amount of rockets. We didn't know about invasion at home. And I woke up my husband and I told him, wake up, let's go and prepare the shelter. There is war. And I waited. Uh, we prepared the shelter and we opened the TV and we saw what's going on. And I wait, waited to see uh, on the screen a statement that it's war and reservists are drafted. I knew that this would be the next title. Yeah. And the moment I saw this title, which was 9.30 in the morning, I crossed the street to the synagogue in my hometown because it was a Jewish holiday. And I'm not religious, but I hear the praying service every Saturday. So I went to the synagogue and I called the rabbi and I told him, this is war, tell everybody. And it's extremely sad to me to tell you that because my father did exactly the same thing in 1960. And after that, uh, the next day, the next day, the Northern Front was open. And this is another thing that people don't know. This is not Israel-Hamas war. It was Israel-Hamas war for 24 hours. That's it. Right. Okay. The next day, Hezbollah opened fire. And the next day, Hezbollah launched uh, drones and uh, missiles and anti-tanks to IDF positions. And uh, gradually, the terrorist activity of Hezbollah uh, grew until it stabilized on uh, 5 to 10, sometimes even 15 attacks of Hezbollah every day here in the northern border by different kind of munition, rockets, uh, uh, UAVs or drones, uh, mortars, and mainly anti-tanks which are accurate, we are. We feel like we are being hunted. 
uh, on Sunday, a mother and her son of 45 years old were killed by an anti-tank missile that was pointed at the window of the kitchen while they were eating lunch. That's it. It threw through the, to the window and they were uh, killed from a direct hit and, and these communities are empty. So it's not sporadic hit. Okay, somebody identified that they are home, which is very unusual because these communities are empty because they were evacuated by the government. 60,000 Israelis, which is a lot of, if you take yep. it out of 9 million, 60,000 Israelis only in the north. I'm not talking about the south. There's different numbers. In the north, 60,000 Israelis by the order of the government from around 40 communities don't know when they will be able to go back because they are. if they are going back, they are being hunted by these anti-tank missiles. But we am don't I afraid for my life? Yes, I am. We, but we don't hear about that here. No, I, I, I must tell you, I was never afraid. I used to go to the border every day uh, before the war. I saw Hezbollah meters away from me, meters away. I have tons of pictures. They took pictures of me. I took pictures of them. I was never, I never went with a gun. I don't have a gun. I don't carry a gun. I was always against that. After I left the army, I didn't want to hear about any of all of them. And um, now the feeling is different. I sent my kids away at the first few days of the war because of the first few weeks, we didn't know at what time Hezbollah will start and the army was not here. It took time until all the reservists was drafted and until IDF was deployed in the north as well. Today we have tens of thousands of, of reservists and, and soldiers that are based up north and we feel better. I can't say we feel secure. We don't feel secure, but we feel better than, than October 8 and October 9, okay? okay cool. um, but at the first two weeks, I, I told my kids, you're going to get out of here. I'm not, I didn't let them to, be, to stay at home and, and they didn't want to go. For the first two months of this war, we didn't have schools. Schools were closed. They, they couldn't go to school. Um, definitely, this is an existential threat that I've never experienced. And, and I am very much afraid of a scenario that it will be a ceasefire and everybody out there in the international community will be, will be extremely happy. But actually, Ceasefire doesn't mean peace. Okay. And ceasefire would mean, just a ceasefire means that Hezbollah preserves its capabilities. And it means that the initiative is in the hands of Hezbollah. And one morning we will wake up at the same scenario of Qutbs in the north. And this is an ex existential threat, an existential fear. How do you think the... Um other countries, the United Kingdom, the USA, How, do you feel supported? Not enough. I feel that um, first, okay, I, I should put it this way. First, let's talk about the American aid. And this is crucial and extremely important for the success of this campaign to continue to get the American aid. Uh, Israelis are aware of that. Um, at the same time, definitely the demonstrations and protests that we see in the campuses in the United States and in the streets of London uh, may make us feel that we are the, the front, we like the, the Western front with Iran here, 
and the West doesn't appreciate that. Because this is not just the, the Jewish fight or the Israeli fight. Uh, this is the West fight. Indeed. And, and as we said earlier on, I, I come from a policing background. Okay, I spent 30 years in the police. When I joined the police, um, the IRA were prevalent in their terrorism. Now it is Islamic extremism. If the Hezbollah and Hamas, if they're able to succeed, this doesn't only impact on Israel, this impacts on all of us. This impacts on the streets of London and the streets of New York because the indoctrination goes through the community. And as we said earlier, if you don't chop off the head and now the tail, the beast will re-manifest itself in a different format and it needs to be dealt with. You mentioned the IRA and I hear this from, from British all the time. We solved our problem with the IRA, Israel can do the same thing. And, and I want to say something about it. I'm not an expert to this conflict uh, with, with, you know, Irish and British conflict, but here is my question to you. First, these are two different islands. Yes. And geography matters. Absolutely. Geography matters here. And second, the, IR, the IRA carried out terrorist attacks in uh, England, in the island of England, okay? I don't know how you, you say. But it never threatened to completely destroy England on behalf of a radical religious uh, ideology. Mm. It never said England shouldn't exist at all and IRA should control England. No, you're absolutely right, it didn't. Okay, and this is a huge difference. It's not a tactical difference. It's a huge difference with regard to the solution that we are talking about. But we still because have. Because we are threatened, you know, inside Israel. I, I, absolutely, and I absolutely agree. And I think that it's the, um, whilst the words that you say weren't used, in the mid 80s when they tried to blow up the entire government at, in Brighton when Margaret Thatcher was blown up and Norman Tebbit and his wife etc that was entire government but the entire people well but but there were still attacks <laughs> on the people and you know the streets of London we had we had bombs on a regular basis where ordinary people were murdered now these things still happen. They don't happen on the mainland, is what you, what you but but there are still devices found in Northern Ireland. There are still attacks in Northern Ireland. So the, imagine you will find um, two hundred thousand missiles. Some yeah. of them are accurate in Northern Ireland. What would you do? You'd go after the missiles. You you would not sit. Okay and wait and for them to discharge the missiles and say aha you missed me or you you got me you have to go in and with take all of those missiles and put them out of circulation the intelligence services and i'm sure it's the same in israel but the intelligence services work tirelessly to identify arms caches even now even in northern ireland to with to remove those devices and they are successful but we don't there's a press embargo we don't get to read about it we don't get to hear about it but if you don't take away the toys the games will continue 
And that is the that's the problem. If people don't understand that if they don't go in and we recover the weaponry, the weapons are going to get used against the nation of Israel. And and the, the problem what happened to us here is that we didn't get in and take off these weapons and these weapons became more sophisticated to greater ranges, uh, hidden better underground, uh, more accurate, uh, massive amounts, putting us at a huge risk that now to get into Lebanon and to take off all these weapons is going to take a price of human lives on both sides that nobody is willing to pay. But on the other hand, if we are not going to do that, we may end up in the same uh, massacre that we experienced in the city. Yeah, and if, if we if we tolerate it, then another nation, someone else will be next, and 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 so on and so forth. And it's the same in Ukraine. I, I um, if and, and geographically, Ukraine is closer to us than than Israel is. But if if we don't stand up to Putin or support that that standing up to Putin then he will just roll through the countries in the way that Adolf Hitler ro rolled through the countries in the, in the late 30s, early 40s. So it, absolutely, you know, it, it needs to be dealt with. Nobody wants human loss. Nobody wants, you know, no. we, we don't want Israeli kids being killed. We don't want Palestinian kids being killed. But you can't use a human shield and expect there to be no collateral damage. You can't do Actually, it. Actually, Hamas and Hezbollah, are doing that on purpose because they know that that way the West will stop Israel from completely defeating them. They know that the only way to win this is to prevent the Gazians from the humanitarian aid and to take over the humanitarian aid. And it's a win-win for Hamas because that way they gain all the aid. And at the same time, you still see the pictures of the poor Gazians have lack of water and lack of fuel and lack of food because Hamas took everything. And so that's that's the tactic they are using. And if we want actually to bring to the prosperity of Gaza, which now this is truly an opportunity, we should defeat Hamas. That's the only way to bring to the prosperity of the Gazians themselves. Well, and, and Hamas yes. run the, they run the hospitals, they run the infrastructure. They've they've got overall control, and the upper level of the leadership, they're not suffering. They're not going to be without water or electricity. They've they've no, got. They don't. They've got everything that they need. Actually, if they wanted to have the Gazians say, what they could have done is to enable their people to hide in the tunnels. The yeah. tunnels are safe, and they didn't do that. No, they didn't give them the opportunity to go there. No, they didn't enable them to do. And I want, I want to say one more thing about distinction. Okay, I think it's important to talk about it for a moment. First, I agree. Um, we should do whatever we can to make sure that children are not getting killed. But I want to talk about this challenge because this is truly a challenge during a military operation, in any military operation whatsoever, yes. anywhere in the world. And over here, even, uh, even more. Because what actually happened to us is that we are trying to distinct in a situation that you see people that are supposed to be uninvolved civilians that are actually assisting Hamas. We we find the peers of the tunnels uh, in the in the homes. We find rifles in the teddy bear. We find rockets below the beds. Um, when we speak of October seventh, we saw a few ways of infiltrator of invade, uh, war, invaders. 
The first one was actually the Nukba, the Hamas, the commando force that uh, entered the, the communities. But afterwards came those who were not wearing uniforms, they were not always armed, and they looted uh, the communities, they um, brutalized the bodies, they kidnapped some of the bodies. I don't know if you heard in the news, and I'm going to be a little bit graphic, I'm, I'm warning our, our listeners here. Um, in the news today and yesterday in Israel, there's a story of a father who insisted to get back uh, the body of his son that was kidnapped to Gaza. And when he got back the body, he got back the body without the head. Yeah. And he asked the IDF to search for the head. And they found the head this week. And they found it in an ice cream refrigerator. Somebody was marketing, wanted to sell the head to buy and sell the head for money and eventually market it, trade it uh, with the Israelis. This is not innocent people, but the people who hide it in the ice cream refrigerator were not armed, not necessarily armed. Yes. Uh, we are bringing humanitarian aid to the Gazans, to the children of Gaza, but actually you can see in their Telegram accounts, the films from that day, and you can see the children of Gaza spitting on a body of an Israeli woman, dead woman, who was raped and then kidnapped to Gaza when she's dead. And they were spitting on her dead naked body. These were children who were spitting on her dead naked body. You saw that uh, in, uh, during the release of the hostages. You saw the children in Gaza spitting on the Red Cross vehicles uh, and, and knocking on, on the doors uh, of, of the vehicles that brought the, the hostages that afterwards were released. So again, it's important to make a distinction. I can tell you first-hand evidence after I was in the army unit, that IDF is putting a lot of resources to protect enemy population, to protect, okay, not even to avoid, to pro actively protect enemy population. But morally, morally speaking, we Israelis ask ourselves what kind of punishment these children, what, what are we doing with that? Or not children, men that are not wearing uniforms, but looted the bodies. What are we doing? So I don't think they should get killed. There is no Israeli bomb that was launched to Gaza in order to kill children, any children. There is no order like that in the Israeli army. And again, I'm saying that firsthand. It is forbidden in the IDF to deliberately kill citizens. And anybody who is doing that will go to jail. And every officer in the IDF knows that, that he will go to jail if he will deliberately kill enemy uh, civilians. But the distinction sometimes is complicated. Yeah. In the battlefield, in the chaotic situation of a battlefield, it's not always easy. This is my message to the people who are listening to us. But but the but the thing is that I will I can I can only compare it to the IRA. Sometimes you don't know what a terrorist looks like because if everybody looks the same and they're not wearing a uniform, then it's hard to distinguish. And unfortunately, there have been um, hostages that have been killed in crossfire, and and people forget that. What we're talking about three months now 
there are still hostages outstanding. There are still Israeli citizens that are being held hostage. 136, and the youngest one is a baby that was supposed to celebrate his first year birthday yesterday. And that, and that is incomplete. That is lost on people. They don't. We don't know whether he's alive or dead. Okay. We don't no. know. He was catched. He was. He was captured alive with his mother. It's absolutely heartbreaking. I have got a question, though, before. Why are the other Arabic nations not either supporting or taking in Palestinians as refugees? Somebody wants to perpetuate the conflict. Not taking the refugees, meaning perpetuating the conflict. Uh, in Lebanon, Palestinian refugees from 1948 are still, still living in refugee camps. Really? They cannot own any property. They are not allowed to work. They are fully dependent on UNRWA. And UNRWA is the only agency that uh, actually, it's the agency that, the UN agency that's supposed to treat Palestinian refugees since 1948. And if you are looking to the rest of the refugees all over the world, they cannot heritage their status of refugee. If you have refugees, I don't know, from Syria, or from Pakistan, their grandchildren are becoming British what? if they were born in, in London, okay? The, the grandchildren of Palis a Palestinian that is living in London will still be considered a refugee wow. and still get money from the UN. Wow, I never, I, I never knew that. So that Palestinians are getting a different... Uh, Treated in treated and all other refugees around the globe. I can recommend of somebody who can give you a, a podcast specifically on this issue. That and that's how you yeah, and that's how you perpetuate the conflict, actually. And public at large keep going on about the Palestinian nation, the Palestinian Palestine's never really been a nation, has it? It's never had a king, it's never had a royal family, it's never had any um any real status. It's almost manufactured. Am I right? Look, I, mean, I, must, I must tell you something about that, uh, and I will surprise you. It doesn't matter. Um, I have no tools in dealing with that. Right. I want to, to, to talk about my heritage and my history yes. uh, to be uh, entitled for this piece of land. If there, are, there is a group of people they truly believe that they are Palestinians. What can I tell them? Well, how can I tell them they are not? They truly believe they are Palestinians. So I have to deal with that. They are not uh, going to disappear. This is my starting point to this discussion. The problem is that people tend to ignore is that below the surface, it is not only a national conflict. As Hamas, this is the best example, is also a religious movement. Right. So it is mixed religious and national conflict. And this is changing the picture. Today, what happened, actually what happened in the past decade, is this, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is kind of hijacked. And we are in the middle of this process. It didn't end yet, but it was hijacked by an external factor named Iran. Right. And it is actually taking it to a different direction. 
Gotcha. And we are in the middle of the process. We don't see where this is going exactly, but we see the Iranian fingerprint everywhere we look now. And if you ask Israelis now, everybody's talking with me about the two-state solution, two-state solution. What two-state solution at this point of time? It, it's a nice idea, okay, on, on the paper. But at this point of time, when the head of the Palestinian Authority himself is against elections in Palestinian Authority in the past 18 years, because he knows that if he will go to elections, Hamas will win. In West Bank, Hamas will win. What does that mean about us Israelis if Hamas will take over West Bank? Right. So what kind of two-state solution are we talking about? Yeah. Um, we should, we should, you know, at least change the conversation to get to the point that we can go and discuss again of the two-state solution. Do, do you think that there is negotiation taking? I mean, there must be some form of negotiation taking place because hostages have been handed across. So there must be a, a, a line of communication between the two sides. But how real is it? The negotiations are not for peace or compliance, or it's not there, you know, where World War II, we didn't surrender Hamas yet, and Sinwar Hitler is still alive. Right. Okay, this language is clear to all uh, people who are living in the United Kingdom. It was clear in World War II that in order to win against Nazi Germany, you should get to Hitler. It was very clear to everybody. And then all the rest, you can make arrangements, and but you you should make the regime itself and the ideology as the controlling ideology in Germany collapse. Even if there are still people who believe in this, even if some of them remained in the government, they were not the ruling party anymore. Full stop. It's the same in Gaza. We need to make sure that Hamas is not the ruling party anymore that its leaders, five, four senior leaders, are gone, and that way we can rebuild Gaza again, even if there will be some people in Gaza that support Hamas. Okay, I, I understand. But um, we cannot create a true change in the future for the Gazians and for the Israelis if Sinwar is still the head of Gaza, and we enable him also to become the head of West Bank with elections and all these talkings. But the bottom line, again, I want to emphasize it. The bottom line is that it's not about the two-state solution. It's not about that because Hamas is not interested in two-state solution. Hamas is interested in one-state solution, which is an Islamic state. That, that's it. Not even a Palestinian, Islamic Palestinian state. Yeah. And this is what, and today Hamas is supported by Iran, which is even more radical. Yeah, we have in this in this country, we, we, we're great around diversity now, and diversity is is very important. You know, we need to have people from all walks of life and all. But mm -hmm. diversity does not exist in Palestine. You you cannot be gay in Palestine. You cannot have any. You have to. It's an indoctrination. A, am I right? Is that in the Palestinian Authority, gays are uh, running away from their lives, and you know where they find shelter in Israel. Yeah. 
Um, diversity, you mentioned diversity. I live in the Galilee, which is in northern Israel. It's uh, more uh, non-Jewish than Jewish population in the Galilee. And if you stand in the middle of my hometown, you will see around you Christian, Muslims, Jews, Jews, everybody um, in different towns, um, but very good neighbors. And we, we live together. And my kids uh, grew up um, with values of no place for hate and accept everybody, you know, different religions. And I'm very proud that I could raise them this way in this crazy neighborhood, the Middle East. But I think that uh, the model of the Galilee over here uh, gives me the hope that it's actually possible. Uh, as you said, with, with the belief on, in diversity, and in Palestinian Authority now, all these, by the way, all these uh, queers from Palestine, I invite them, them I'm, I'm warmly, warmly invite them to come to Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Ramallah, and Gaza. To visit and to see how they are accepted with these signs, queers in for Palestine. Yes, so it's a very interesting conversation. Sarit, thank you so much for your time today. I have really enjoyed our conversation and I wish you and your lovely family all the very best. Please, please, above all, keep safe. Thank you very much. God bless you. Take care. Bye.